0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. One year on from the Queen's death, we look at Charles' first 12 months as king, Harry and Meghan party to Beyonce, and Harry's Netflix show gets a lukewarm response. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Chief Royal Correspondent, and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello listeners and welcome to the show. Now, the day that Queen Elizabeth II died felt really, really unreal at the time. And in all honesty, it still feels surreal to me now. Um, She had obviously been experiencing health problems for about a year beforehand. So in that sense, it didn't come out of nowhere. Um, But it was certainly an incredibly sobering moment, I think, when Buckingham Palace put out this statement at 12.30pm on September the 8th, 2022. Um, So that's 12.30pm UK time saying that the Queen's doctors were concerned for her health and that she was under medical supervision. Now, the palace never encouraged people to feel concerned. So, as soon as that statement came out, it was pretty clear that basically this was going to be the end. Whether it was quickly or slightly more slowly, this was going to be the end. And it really actually w- was not slowly at all. It happened very fast. The Queen was pronounced dead at 3 10 p.m., um, for what it's worth. That was before Harry, uh, you know, it was a a good couple of hours before harry found out um and before he had even got on the plane that was going to take him up to scotland but king charles was with her um at the time while the other royals kind of frantically scrambled to get up mostly from windsor um prince william harry andrew edward and sophie um the duke and duchess of edinburgh all had been down in windsor and had to get kind of get on Uh, planes up to scotland to be by her side Uh, all of those apart from harry got on the same plane and they got there first harry followed sometime later but all of that windsor group of royals um, none of them actually got up there to be by the queen's bedside before she passed that's how quickly it happened and since then so much has happened i think the biggest moment in the royal calendar was obviously the coronation took place 70 years after the Queen's at Westminster Abbey and Charles and Camilla were crowned for the first time. Uh, Kate, now Catherine, Princess of Wales, looked incredibly regal in this kind of floral headpiece and formal regalia. Uh, William pledged his loyalty to the King, he said, as your liege man of life and limb, um, or so the oath goes. And of course Prince Louis was the star on the Buckingham Palace balcony, as he always is. Um, But there's been a lot more than that in Charles' first year in the job. Um, included not just grief and celebration, but conflict also. the One of the big moments in royal reporting over the year, or two moments in fact, was the release of Harry and Meghan's Netflix documentary and also Harry's memoir, Spare. So you've got, if September was kind of the, the period of mourning, December and January, was the period of kind of open conflict. Um, There were allegations that Camilla sacrificed Harry on her PR altar. There were suggestions the royals were jealous of Meghan when she made the front page instead of them at a Remembrance Sunday event. Uh, Harry's account of William bundling him to the ground in an argument about Meghan. Um, And the revelation that Charles didn't hug Harry after breaking the news that Princess Diana had died. So, obviously, a huge amount in those two projects, and I think for the king, this was a case of just battening down the hatches and letting the storm pass over him without really commenting, no matter how upset he must have felt at the time. You know, all of that stayed private and yeah it must have been a lot of pain Um, but all these months later the royals have mostly survived with their reputations intact and that is true actually on both sides of the Atlantic it's true in Britain but it's true in America too Um, the coronation some months later, about five months later was not a time for reconciliation though, Harry was kind of in and out really fast, Um, he flew in for the ceremony, he he did go to the ceremony, Princess Anne sat in front of him wearing a large feather in her hat obscuring his view Um, but but afterwards, as soon as the ceremony finished, he was straight in a car off to the airport after Heathrow, um, straight from Westminster Abbey, whereas obviously the other royals went on to Buckingham Palace, where most of them appeared on the Buckingham Palace balcony. There was also a kind of dinner behind closed doors. So where do the royals stand one year on from the moment that Charles lost his mother? Well, <clears throat> Harry and William lost their granny too, um, and the world lost one of its most popular public figures. But needless to say, royal reconciliations, it really isn't any closer. Um, Harry's not on speaking terms with his brother. He's not expected to see his father when he comes to Britain this week on September the 7th. It's the day before the anniversary of the Queen's death. And it's not thought that he's going to see Charles. Um, Charles will be up in Scotland. He's going to mark his accession day in private. So that's in keeping with his mother's tradition. The Queen would always spend her accession day. The accession day is the day that the monarch automatically assumes the role of sovereign upon the death of their parents. So it doesn't have to wait for the coronation. It's automatic. The moment that one monarch dies, the next becomes the monarch in order to kind of continue the monarchy so that the monarchy never stops, basically. So the accession day, you know, you could think of it as a day of celebration, but in actual fact, really, it's a day of kind of solemn mourning uh, for, for the royals. And the queen would always spend hers at Sandringham, which is where she lost her father, King George VI. She wasn't there, but that's where he died. So that's what she would do every uh, every February. Um, he died in 1952. And Charles seems, that so far at least, to be continuing with the same tradition. So he's going to be up, up in Scotland um, taking a private moment. That's, that, I think, is actually, you know, it's not just that that's where he lost his mother. It's also that Balmoral, Sandringham, these big royal estates, they're very private. There's a lot of space and a lot of privacy. And that means that they can actually spend some real alone time. And then, you know, he's. I think he'll have the weight of his shoulders on him, the weight on his shoulders in terms of the responsibility for guiding this institution that was so important to his mother into the future. But we don't think he'll see Harry. Um, Harry's got the Invictus Games in Germany. It starts the following day on September the 9th in Dusseldorf. So he's going to be in London on the 7th. We don't think he's going to go up to uh, Scotland on the 8th and then he'll be in Germany on the 9th. Um, but there is kind of a bit of a let-off for Harry as well, because we're not expecting William to be in Scotland Scotland. scotland either so in that sense harry isn't missing a big kind of whole family occasion um but of course you know it's kind of a bit different for william because he doesn't have this incredibly uh tense relationship with his father he doesn't have this deep long-term conflict to resolve with his father he does of course have that with harry but seemingly absolutely no desire to sit down face to face and try to sort that out Um, So, royal relations, really, they haven't improved much in a year, if at all. And you know what? If Harry's visit does go ahead and he doesn't see Charles or William, then yeah, honestly, maybe it's time to give up hope. I can't see a reconciliation in the foreseeable future if the two sides aren't even willing to try. You know, like in the past, they were trying. There was kind of a feeling that, well, Harry did meet his family after Prince Philip's funeral. There were some signs of a desire to put on a united front um, in the days leading up to the Queen's funeral. You know, Harry, Meghan, William and Kate were all seen together at Windsor. You know, there was evidence that they were trying, but there really isn't that anymore. And if you stop trying, then of course that means you lose hope. So... That's kind of where I am with it. I mean, yeah, if this is, if this is where they are now, then it is time to give up hope of a reconciliation anytime soon. Um, but the royal rift isn't the only issue. There's also other questions for Charles, like how he handled his first year in the job. And, you know, I saw a piece a while back saying he's not achieved very much in this first year. And, you know, isn't that a nightmare for him? etc, cetera, et cetera. Honestly. I don't think that's going to matter to him. There is no real expectation of Britain that the reigning monarch comes into power and kind of achieves a huge amount in their first year. It's not at all like being president. You don't kind of sweep into power on a manifesto about change and then begin kind of aggressively reforming everything. You know, that's for politicians. Um, And don't get me wrong, the British public is certainly getting very frustrated with politicians at the moment, so there's plenty of kind of, you know, plenty of angst in Britain about that. But for royals, the era which you define your legacy comes really before you're crowned. So for Charles, he can look back on his whole era as Prince of Wales, when he campaigned on the environment, when it wasn't popular, when he set up his, one of his most successful charities, the Prince's Trust, which works to tackle youth unemployment, give young people from difficult backgrounds chances in, to make themselves an industry. And he'll look back on that, on that as his legacy, and if things go slowly for the first few years at the palace, I don't think he'll have a huge problem with that. It's a very, very difficult institution to change, and a large parts of it are honestly run by the courtiers, they're run by the kind of household staff. Um, That does, though, mean that this is also a key era for Prince William. He has his Earthshot Prize, which he will hope will be his legacy, his kind of equivalent of the Prince's Trust. Um, And he's going to take this year's ceremony to Singapore in November, so that's a big date coming up for him. And he will really want to make sure that this project counts for him. And when he becomes king, and however many years' time that proves to be, he's going to want to enter the job with a legacy already in the bag and this is really i think a make or break project for him in that respect um but it's not all simple for charles no matter what i've just said it isn't simple for him because he actually does have a really serious problem that he's got to get to grips with and that is he is unpopular with young people in britain now, I've spoken about this on the show before. It's a trend that closely follows the Harry and Meghan story. Um, but Charles, he's not popular among 18 to 24-year-olds. 52% of them dislike him compared to 28% who like him and that gives him a net approval rating of minus 24. So this is all from YouGov data that's just been published. So all you know all these months after the queen passed away and it, and that moment that moment of succession did cause a spike in positivity towards Charles but it seems to have you know ebbed and flowed away fairly rapidly. Now Gen Z Brits are more likely to feel embarrassed by the monarchy than proud of it and to view royalty as damaging to the kind of reputation that Britain has on the world stage. So that's a real problem for him. And what does he do about it? I mean, you're talking about a 74-year-old, nearly 75-year-old man born in a palace, and he's got to win back a demographic group who don't like privilege, um, either of the financial kind or of the kind of, you know, straight white male kind. And he has a male heir who in turn has a male heir, And they've got a load of houses and they don't pay inheritance tax and they're literally entitled. So it's a very difficult problem to solve. And I'll tell you what, this is the problem that I would be spending most of my time on if I was in Charles's shoes. And it's a real headache-inducing thing. Um, I see a couple of avenues for addressing it, one of which is try to make some progress on the historic legacy of slavery which could come in the form of an apology, is probably the simplest way. Now, he would probably get into trouble because it's not British foreign policy to apologise for slavery. So, he sh- he's technically not supposed to. So, he could get in trouble for doing it. I think he could find a circumstance in which he did it and got away with it, and it would cause a bit of a row, a bit of an argument. But the people who would be most angry about it are fiercely pro-monarchy. So, I think that ultimately they would just forget it in time. Um, So that's one option. Apologize, or the other one is more difficult. It's pay reparations. So what would that look like? It would probably look something along the lines of trying to set up a program of year by year donations or financial contributions to some kind of a cause or fund that was designed to help people in parts of the world that were previously parts of the British Empire. The difficulty is, like, how much money can he actually get together and how far does that go when such a huge portion of the world was affected by slavery? Like, where do you you start? Do you focus on the Caribbean? That doesn't feel quite right. So, you, you know, you've got to certainly focus on Africa, but then you can't ignore the Caribbean. So how does he actually do it? It's very difficult, and for that reason... While I would love to see progress there, I don't foresee Charles making progress there anytime soon. But I personally think it would be much easier for him to make an apology. And the more he gets in trouble for it, the better it will go down with Gen Z. So, it's not hopeless for him, but it is serious, and this is why it's serious. Now, I've got to say, um, it's very important to say that Charles remains very popular when you take the whole British population, you know, in totality. He's not as popular as William and Kate, but he is popular, people like him, Uh, he doesn't have a problem across all age groups. The problem is confined to 18 to 24-year-olds, but... If those 18 to 24-year-olds retain this opinion of him, retain this perspective of him and the monarchy into later life and pass it on to the generations that follow, then monarchy could become a very controversial subject over the next 20, 30 years, and particularly when William comes to take the throne. So that's really what's got to happen. I think they've got to put their heads together and work out that this is a big problem for both of them and they have to come up with a solution that works But, you know, answers on a postcard about what that might be. Uh, Actually, you know, genuinely message me on Twitter. I'd love to know what people think about it. Message me on Twitter um, and tell me what you think. Jack underscore Royston. Right. I'm going to take a quick break. But before I do, don't forget to rate and review us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. And when I'm back, Harry and Megan have been out enjoying themselves in L.A. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. Prince Harry and Meghan were out at SoFi Stadium in LA partying at Beyonce gig on September the 1st for Meghan's mother's birthday. That's right, Doria Ragland was 67 last week and they looked like they were having a great time. They were dancing... They looked like maybe they were even possibly doing a little bit of singing along. Um, there was a guy who was like running around recording TikTok video, TikTok video after TikTok video after TikTok video, and they all kind of went viral. And then they were all over Twitter as well, and it was everywhere. Um, the press said Harry looked miserable. And I, in all honesty, like there were a couple of pictures where he looked a bit miserable. Maybe, you know, in all honesty, would it hugely shock anybody to learn that Harry might well have a uh, moody, resting face? I, think, I I think that's fairly straightforward. I do think, though, that I also saw some videos of him kind of dancing as well and looking like he was having a good time. And honestly, it's a huge breath of fresh air to see. I'm very pleased that they've been getting out, having some fun and, you know, putting the uh, prolonged era of kind of complaints and criticisms to one side for a little bit and just go out and enjoy Having fun. It, it, look, if you're going to make millions and millions and millions of dollars, which clearly they have, even if the estimates are wildly over the top, you know, wildly over the top, the $100 million estimate for the Netflix deal, like, even if it's 10% of that, $10 million, like, if you can't enjoy yourself on $10 million, then you just have to give the money away to somebody who can. Like, it's not fair to keep $10 million and be miserable. Like, give it to me. I'll go out and enjoy it for you. But they have done now. You know, they've gone out, they've had some fun, and it's great to see. Uh, They looked really jokey with each other. They looked very natural with each other. And there was also a lot of PDA, you know, a lot of hugging, you know, arms around each other, that kind of thing, which was great to see also because there have been, you know, it's, the, it's that classic problem for them. The minute they disappear, all kinds of rumors uh, pop up and people were saying they were getting divorced. You know, everybody was in PR was saying after the overexposure of Spare and Netflix, oh, they've got to disappear for a while. They've got to be in the background. They've got to just let people forget about them for a while. But then the minute they do that, people start popping up everywhere saying they're getting divorced. So. Here they were, back out, having a nice time. And clearly it does not look like they are secretly divorced because, you know, honestly, if you're div- two people are divorcing, there is often hatred there, like actual hatred. But even if there isn't, even if it's an amicable divorce, like it's quite a big ask to expect somebody to kind of like Actually, hug you in public and do all the rest of it. So, uh, it really did feel like this was putting the divorce rumors to bed. They were unfounded to begin with. So, it's uh, good to see some reality emerge from the vacuum. And it wasn't the only event either. Harry went to see uh, LAFC play into Milan, into Miami, sorry, in the MLS. And uh, LA lost 3 1, so bad luck, LA. Um, and for what it's worth, you know, he did look like he was enjoying himself. There was a, like a little viral video of him kind of like sort of looking very excitable, like a little kid. Um, and it's, uh, actually, I, which, do you know what? I honestly thought that was kind of random in a way because Harry, I always thought was more of a rugby fan. He kind of says as much in his book and it's the long standing perception of him that he wasn't actually that into football, soccer, as Americans call it. Uh, that's William's sport. William loves soccer. He sports Aston Villa. He's president of the FA, which is England's football governing body, Um, whereas I've actually personally witnessed Harry decline to play a game of soccer, a game of football with some school kids, but take them up on a game of handball instead, which is obviously like slightly closer to rugby. Um, But there you go. People can surprise you. And why shouldn't he? It's like I said, you know, it's just good to see them having some fun and letting their hair down. Um, There was one other bizarre aspect to the Beyonce gig, though, uh, which was that like the fan who was shooting all of these videos, like obviously he he seems to really love Harry and Meghan. But it did also seem like kind of strange to me after everything that Harry said about hating people doing that. Like it was sort of bordering a little bit on intrusive. Now, this is obviously happening in California and they're in a stadium where clearly they're like visible to the whole crowd. So I could understand why somebody might think that it's all fair game. But I do remember that bit in Spare. Now, I don't know how thoroughly listeners have read Spare, but there's a bit where he gives like quite an extreme account of an experience megan had he well he says megan had in london where she went to a supermarket i think it was a whole foods and then like people were following her everywhere she went and running after her as she went out and it was sounded almost like something from a kind of zombie horror film or something like that um but this is like it was kind of full-on like it was kind of full-on one video i actually honestly think fine totally fine a couple of pictures in a video fine This was a lot of videos and I kind of have to put my hand up and say, I guess if he'd only done one, it would have been less easy to use this footage to kind of show that the divorce rumor was nonsense because maybe he wouldn't have got a hug or he wouldn't have got, you know, you wouldn't have just seen how natural they were interacting with each other. But also like it was kind of awkward, Stanny behavior, arguably, arguably. But also, you know, to be fair to him, no children involved. They were by themselves, no children. So that is like a a crucial red line for the royals and always had been. Uh, And he also wasn't asked, there's no sign that he was asked to stop. So the essence of harassment is the persistent repetition of an act after you've been told to stop. So you kind of hear you have the presence of that kind of persistent repetition of the act of taking of repeated photographs and repeated videos, but you don't have the presence of Harry and Meghan telling him to stop as far as we know. Um, but, you know, Harry takes it seriously, but he also, he has every opportunity and right to object publicly if he wants to, and he so far has not taken up that opportunity. Um, so let's let's just assume that they are fine with it. Um and on that note, I'm gonna take a quick break. But before I do, a reminder to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jack underscore Royston. You will find all my latest stories for Newsweek. And when I'm back, Prince Harry's Heart of Invictus documentary dropped last week, and I will discuss exactly how it all played out. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery, starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Uh, Heart of Invictus was intended to be the very first Sussex Netflix project. So uh, this was way back when it was announced in 2021. It was the first to be announced. It was supposed to be the first to be released, but it has ended up being the third. And it landed, I would say, with something of a kind of soft thud. Uh, There were no major royal bombshells, bar a veiled swipe along the lines that Harry didn't have the support he needed to deal with grief from the loss of his mother, which resurfaced after he returned home from afghanistan so uh, obviously this was some years after diana passed away but it also it, it all flooded back to him while he was experiencing quite probably ptsd from fighting in war this was in kind of 2013 Um, So, you know, it's no real surprise, I guess, that that was received as a criticism of the kind of palace and the royal environment and uh, Harry's family. And Harry kind of must have known it would be, which even though some of the media reactions were probably quite strong, given how subtle it was, also, you know, like Harry knows that's going to happen. Harry knows the Daily Mail are going to run away with it. So given that he knows that, he obviously did decide to put it in there anyway. Um, But honestly, like... Like, it was so much more mild than Spare, his memoir, and the first Netflix show was way back in December 2022. So I think the bigger issue, in a way, or the more interesting issue for me, was that and Victors didn't really take off in the same way as, as those two projects. And, uh, in fact, TikTok seemed far more interested in Harry and Meghan going to Beyonce than they did in the documentary. Like, if you think how much work Harry put into that documentary... And one trip to see a Beyonce concert, like wiped the floor with it on TikTok. Like I'm not talking about marginally more interest. I'm talking about like wiped the floor with it. Um, so yeah, that's kind of awkward. And in a way, like, I, I actually think that would be kind of deflating for Harry in a way that's probably really familiar to a lot of journalists. Like, this is my, well, this is one of my big things I come back to with Harry is that he spent his whole life hating the media and probably not really having that clear an idea of what it's like to be a journalist. And then... He's quit the palace and now he's become the media. So Harry, these days, he is the media. And so now this is an example where Harry is having an experience that a lot of journalists have had, which is you can put your heart and soul into a story you really care about and think is incredible, um, but it, it just isn't necessarily guaranteed to, to be anywhere near as big or as popular or as successful as something that is kind of giving the people what they want but also just not that interesting to you. So this is, just the, this is just the reality of the media. This is what it's like. So this all sent my mind uh, back to a whole load of conversations. That I can't even remember how many from the earliest days of my reporting on the royal family, when it would, it would be made very clear to me that the royals did not consider reporting on their private lives to be legitimate. So they understood some of this would happen anyway, but journalists were not... To expect much help or guidance from the palace uh, because the real story, in their eyes, you know, in the palace's eyes, was the charity work and the job of being a royal. Um, Now, this was said on Harry's behalf, as well as other royals. It wasn't just him. Um, But he clearly did feel very strongly that there was too much interest in his private life. So from the minute Harry and Meghan quit the palace, it was clear to me that the big challenge was going to be whether they made their money the clean, positive, happy way by getting people excited in the work they were going to do you know, the stuff that makes the world a better place, or whether they would slip and slide into making the same call as dozens of tabloid editors before them, i.e. that it's the royal soap opera that sells. Uh, and initially, based on Oprah and Spare and the her- first Harry and Meghan documentary, it very firmly felt as though they were coming down on the side of gaining huge amounts of attention, like a massive audience, through revealing really private family matters in some cases. Um, but there was always Hartman Victor's waiting in the background, and that had the potential to change everything. So. Even though they got so much criticism for, you know, invading, being privacy hypocrites and all the rest of it, I still had in the back of my mind, well, if Harry can make Hearts of Invictus into a huge commercial success, he will still have demonstrated the existence of a lucrative commercial market for coverage of the positive work that the royal family do to try to make the world a better place so i was hugely interested to see whether harry could pull this off and make hearts of invictus a rating smash hit um it's a great cause there's no doubt about that fantastic cause but it doesn't appear to have been a ratings hit so far as we can tell. The days after it was released, it was not in the trending top 10 lists, either in America or in Britain. And we got a a company called Pulsar, it's like an audience intelligence platform, to pull some data from Twitter for us, or X as it's now known. Um, And this showed that Hartman Victors triggered just 5% of the conversation stirred up in the 48 hours after Spare. So the two biggest groups talking about it were fans of the royal family of the monarchy and fans of Harry and Meghan. So they're kind of two opposing sides to this argument that has been raging for a few years now. And it's basically, effectively, it barely broke out of that royal bubble, except in relation to one other demographic group. And that is publicly minded Democrats. So that means people with links to the army or the police... So you've got to think like veterans and their families are going to be a big part of what's driving that, given the subject matter of the film itself. Um, reviewers were far more kind about and Victors than they were about the first one, um, which got panned. Audiences less so. It did get a kind of it was a green tomato rather than a red tomato um, in its audience score but the the actual like kind of professional mainstream media reviewers did did rate it much more kindly than they did the Harry and Meghan documentary um, but so far Harry seems to me like he has if anything proven the point that good deeds done by the Royals do not. Yeah, they're not commercial enough to be the sole focus of royal reporting and the royal debate. And if Harry, when it's his own family, his own father and brother, and his own life, isn't prepared to kind of eat his greens, uh, and then instead serves up this kind of like biographical equivalent of a big plate of kind of privacy breaching fast food and burgers and whatnot, then it's not really realistic for him to expect the media to serve up quinoa salads and, you know, all the kind of healthy stuff that you're supposed to like, but that a lot of audiences just aren't into. So obviously, Harry, if he's going to... If he's going to talk endlessly about his uh, his royal todger and spill all of his brother's secrets and, you know, and expect that to be fine and kind of make the case publicly that it's fine and he's entitled to do it, then obviously the tabloid press are going to consider themselves perfectly entitled to do it too. Um, so Harbin Victus, you know, it was really moving in places, there was particularly the stuff about Ukraine. It followed this um, Ukrainian competitor who was at one point kidnapped and tortured and They were kind of trying to use the publicity around the show to get her released. Um, So that was all very powerful, but it's the kind of show that could easily, it feels to me like it could easily have been made um, while Harry was working Royal and it would have been, you know, probably one episode, an hour long episode on the BBC and it would have been fine. It wouldn't have been a hundred million dollars, but it would have been fine. And the press would have loved it because they get so little out of the Royals on Roadstrop. So it would have got loads of publicity. You know, the interviews with Harry would have gone down brilliantly. A big fuss would have been made out of it. All the coverage would have been positive. And Harry wouldn't have had to worry about the money because he'd have been subsidised by his father's official royal estates, uh, one of which is viewed as public money, kind of almost taxpayers' money, the sovereign grant, and one of which is is not. But needless to say, they were even the Duchy of Lancaster now and the Duchy of Cornwall previously, even though they're not considered taxpayers' money, they are still they come with the job. They belong to the monarchy and they come with the job. And Harry, you know, he would have been bankrolled by them. So there you are. Like I I don't actually think Harry Quitting was the wrong decision, but I absolutely do think he abandoned the moral high ground with his book, and he abandoned the moral high ground with his first Netflix show. And now he's also made the point that even he can't really seem to find a big enough audience in the kind of positive stuff the Royals do to, to banish the soap opera uh, and you know protect privacy basically. So on that point, that is it for this week's episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives, and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thanks for listening, everyone, and a curtsy to you all.